We are seeing that the climate crisis isn't 30 or 40 or 50 years in the future, it is right now. We need a president in office who understands the immediate threat of that crisis, and Bernie Sanders is that guy. Hi, my name is Barshani Prakash. I am one of the co-founders of and currently serving as the executive director for Sunrise Movement. We're endorsing Bernie Sanders for president because he has proven again and again and again that he understands this issue. He understands its scope. He understands the severity. He understands that it is a social justice issue, that it's about racial and economic justice, that it's about the fight of our lives. This is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about our good friend down in San Diego representing that proud section of the country uh, in the most not corrupt of ways, uh, Duncan Hunter. Uh, we're also going to be doing a uh, quick rundown on some extremely horrifying shit coming out of LAPD. Uh, Aliso Canyon, also terrifying, but also good news on that front. There's, It's it's weird. We'll get into it. Um, SB 50 is back, and um, I don't know if we'd say better than ever, but it's certainly back. Yes. Uh, there's an interesting thing going on with uh, AB 1197, which is something we talked about last year. We'll go into more details on it. And then we've got some great news relating to the first of the Proposition HHH housing opening up in Los Angeles. Uh, and then also some uh, bittersweet news to counteract that, of course with the uptick in the number of sweeps of our homeless brothers and sisters. Uh, yeah, so first, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. I spent uh, this morning out knocking doors for a local candidate for uh, Tempe City Council because uh, the election for that is coming up. Uh, well, ballots go out for that one on February 12th, and then they vote for Tempe City Council on March 4th. So uh, that's the deadline. Hey, so, so it's yeah, it's, almost it's coming Super up close. Tuesday, but uh, not. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Arizona's primary is also a little Super bit later than that. So <laughs> it's going to be an interesting uh, season here in Arizona. But uh, turning to national attention or turning our attention to national news, there were a couple of endorsements I wanted to flag. Uh, the first one yes. is that Sunrise Movement has officially endorsed Bernie Sanders, which is a, a huge win, not just for Bernie, but for Sunrise Movement exercising that power. And for those of you not familiar with how that process went down, it was a two-step process where Sunrise Movement members had to vote on two questions. The first question was, should we endorse at all? And 60 percent of the membership had to say yes we should endorse in order for them to move on to the second step who should we endorse for the second step the first candidate to get 50 percent of the ballots plus one would win so if nobody crested 50 percent we still wouldn't endorse in this case though bernie sanders ran away with it with 70 per six er, 70 per six Ooh, with 70 per six <laughs> But in this case, keep it in, keep yeah, it in. But in this case, Bernie Sanders <laughs> ran away with seventy-six percent of the ballots, uh, so he Damn. he got a clear, clear mandate on that one. Uh, people in the youth-led climate movement are obviously excited. They obviously see Bernie as our best chance at getting a green new deal in our lifetimes, and like perhaps 
reversing the damage or at least mitigating some of the damage to the climate crisis and getting started down the right path. So I'm really excited for that one. Uh, Sunrise Movement Los Angeles has already been out on the ground working for candidates like Nithya Raman, Lorraine Lundquist, and Dan Brotman. So they've already been fairly politically active, even at a hub level. But from here, it's only going to get bigger. Now, the other endorsement I want to talk about also comes out of LA. (laughs) And this one's a little bit like (laughs) stupider. Um, but <laughs> Mayor Boy Eric Garcetti has officially endorsed Joe boy. Biden. But not only did he officially hey. endorse Joe Biden, he is leaving to co-chair Biden's campaign. So remember, Eric Garcetti... Wait, wait. Does that mean that we get to have a special election to replace his ass? No. It means that he's just going to continue oh. to not do his job, but still get paid. But... Damn it. Yeah, so keep in mind, like, No Olympics has been tracking this, and Eric Garcetti spends, like, 30 to 40% of his time outside of the no city of LA. Like, he's just I love it. always jet-setting across the planet. Wait, what was that? Yeah. I was just saying that No Olympics is... No Olympics ragging on Meg, uh, our Mayor Eric Garcetti. Uh, we have an acronym for him yeah. of Meg. Uh, no Olympics' favorite thing on Twitter to do, absolutely bar none, is to basically uh, shout at him for being an absolutely trash at doing this job. Uh, and making sure that nobody forgets it. Yeah, well, and, and the, the funny thing is, like, we all remember when Eric Garcetti said he was going to run for president, and that really silly song, Ready for Garcetti, came out, which, by the way, I was going to try <laughs> and grab some of that audio to drop it in here. You cannot find the video it? online anymore. No! It is scrubbed from the internet, because the only source for it was um, uh, the YouTube channel for Garcetti's campaign. The video is now set to private. You can't get it. I think somewhere on one of my drives, I might still have it. Um, But I'm not going to try and dig it out. That's like five drives I would have to go through. Um, But yeah, you can just sing it in your head if you remember it. Um, But it's it's weird because when Garcetti decided to not run for mayor, his thinking, or at least his statement, was that L.A. needs him to stay and be the mayor. And now he's taking off to go co-chair a presidential campaign, um, (sighs) which, what the fuck, Eric? Like, Why? I, I mean, not that, like, him staying in L.A. and doing his job oh. would be a heck of a lot better, but, no. like, clearly you're not needed but here. Like, you better. can you can resign, and we can get somebody who actually wants to do the job. Like, it's fine. You can go well, do the Biden thing, but just, like, let us have an actual mayor. Yeah, so here's the best part, though, is that his quote along the lines when, when on the day that he was like, I am proud to accept that I'm going to be the co-chair, his phrase was, let, I'm ready to get to work. It's like, bro, well, you've been in office in the city of LA as a you know a council member, as the president of the city council, and as the mayor for like almost two decades at this point. Yeah, when does the work start? Uh, when when were you supposed to start working, asshole? Well, like, come on, do your job. No, it's it's, or it's funny go too. Go away and let us elect someone who can. A, a Garcetti insider was like giving comments, sort of off the record, to a member of the press, and said the Garcetti machine has oh, been activated. Yes. And remember, like when when Eric Garcetti <laughs> won his last election, it was like thirteen percent voter turnout. Garcetti, Garcetti won like by a wide margin. The person he was running against basically like stopped <sighs> campaigning in like a backroom deal. And was like, I'm still on the ballot, but I'm not really trying. Yeah. But even then, Eric Garcetti yeah. only got like. of the votes of registered voters in the city of Los Angeles, like an 8% mandate. So, like, I don't know what the Garcetti machine is really going to do or what that actually means, but I'm not super intimidated by it, especially with all the momentum that Joe Biden has. I don't really think that this is a winning combination. (laughs) So those are the two endorsements, like, I really wanted to flag. Uh, One of them really, really good, and one of them, like, you know, we expected it, but also, like, 
what the what the fuck, man? Like this is this is what we well, keep Dr. getting. Doctor Dr. Melina Abdullah had an amazing response on Twitter about uh, this. Uh, either, either Twitter or Instagram, I forget what which one it was, but uh, her I believe her exact phrase was sounds about white when it comes ha. to uh, Mayor Mayor Eric Garcetti uh, endorsing Biden and jumping onto his. I, I would also I, I also so, got it. You know what? Well, what, since we just brought up uh, Doctor Abdullah, I want to bring uh, bring up the fact that uh, Pete Buttigieg came and visited Skid Row oh, and went yeah. to one of the bridge shelters, uh, bridge shelter facilities. Black Lives Matter showed up to like give him hell and did a great job of it and uh, was yeah. out there yelling and screaming about Pete's record uh, being terrible on race and policing while he was the mayor. He's absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's been. Uh, he did not have like the greatest visit. It was basically just you know a poverty porn tour and like a photo op showcase to yeah. be like, look at Mayor Pete. He talks to people who are poor occasionally right before he goes to billionaire fundraisers. So you know again like a lot of empty rhetoric <sighs> and a lot of stupid photos that don't really amount to anything. Um, if we believe the polls coming out of Iowa, and I, I I don't really care about the polls, but the caucus commitments more, and I think that is going to be a really, really big one because it also looks like he's got New Hampshire pretty locked down. So I'm excited to see the way this race changes in the next couple of weeks because Iowa's coming real fast. Uh, You know, the California primary is coming up March 3rd. Like, that's going to be here sooner than you think. And it is going to be an absolutely wild ride until we get there. But enough about, like, what I've been thinking about for national electoral politics. (laughs) How's How's your week been going, Chris? Uh, it's been going pretty well. There's been a lot going on, um, but you know, glad to be able to refocus on getting all of this work done and uh, really dive back in uh, 100% to uh, the organizing and activism work because I've been a bit distracted for a while now, and I'm I'm glad to be able to refocus now. So, yeah, let's just go ahead and jump right in. All right, so. Let's start off with another uh, fail-son white guy from Southern California, Mr. Duncan Hunter, Woo-hoo! who is the son yeah. of former congressional representative, also named Duncan Hunter, uh, who represents California's uh, 50th <laughs> district, which is down in San Diego. Uh, this is the guy you might remember uh, who had a lot of extramarital affairs, spent a lot of campaign donations, buying Steam games, uh, traveled the world with his family's pet rabbit, like led a pretty sexy, jet-setting <laughs> lifestyle at the expense of his campaign donors, uh, but the other shoe has finally dropped on Mr. Hunter. So let's talk about that. Quick clarification. I believe he was only doing domestic travel with the rabbit, but he definitely was paying for airfare for the family pet rabbit using campaign funds uh, or allegedly was doing that and uh, did plead guilty to something. So anyway, uh, big news here is that he is finally going to be out of office and we can stop talking about him maybe. Uh, on Monday, January 13th. So very soon he will be no longer able to cast. I mean, he, I think he actually was stripped of his ability to cast any votes uh, in Congress when he pled guilty back on, what, December 3rd or something like that? Yeah, I mean, so, it was shortly after the Katie Hill thing went down, but essentially like two of California's reps stopped having any power to vote being or able to being vote. able to yeah. affect policy like within a week of each other. Like it was a pretty pretty crappy week for yeah. Congress people from California. Yeah. Yeah, so he notified Speaker Pelosi and Governor Newsom of his decision to resign in a letter last week, stating that, quote, it has been an honor to serve the people of California's 50th district, and I greatly appreciate the trust they have put in me over these last 11 years, end quote. Uh, Of course, that trust was uh, massively violated by the amount of money that he was taking from his donors and spending on all of the shit that was 
aforementioned in this part of the podcast. So just a quick reminder, he was indicted in August 2018 on 60 federal counts surrounding accusations that he and his wife, uh, who also was by the, at that point, uh, I believe at that point he was the, she was the former campaign manager, but when the things happened, she was the campaign manager. Uh, they stole some $250,000 worth of campaign funds, according to these allegations, and used that money on all kinds of things, including dentist visits, uh, which they wrote off as being charitable donations, uh, airfare for the pet rabbit, as we mentioned, and video games on Steam, and Duncan spending a bunch of it on extramarital affairs, which uh, does explain why his wife decided to flip and turn witness against him. Like, this is one of the reasons, uh, and, uh, like, if you're going to do crimes or do shady stuff, you only do one of those at a time. Like, it makes yeah. it much harder to, like, get you if you're only doing one bad thing at a time. Like, if you're smuggling drugs, don't speed yeah. in your car. If you're speeding in your car, don't be smuggling drugs also. Yeah, and uh, this is one of those things I, I, I do, I forget if this is actually, like, a thing, but it's definitely a trope in the movies of, like, you cannot compel a spouse to testify against. No, you, you definitely uh, can. Well, there, to- there is marital privilege in a court of law. So like the, yeah. the prosecution couldn't subpoena her and put her on the stand and force her to testify, but she can choose to testify, which she did. Oh, yeah. And like, she got out <laughs> the long knives for that one. Like she shanked <laughs> so, Duncan pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, this just goes to say like, if you're going to do, if you're going to commit, crimes and your spouse is going to be very intimately familiar with the crimes you're committing you probably shouldn't then tack on some extramarital affairs because mm. i mean anyway, unfortunately um, the, the the you know bluth legal analysis that you can't charge a husband and wife for the same crime <laughs> that is not true and you can't just request to be prosecuted under maritime law but it would be nice if you could which also like a yeah, very san diego so- type reference Oh, absolutely. So anyway, so on on December 3rd, he pleaded guilty to a felony conspiracy charge involving campaign spending, but did not say at that point in time when it was that he was going to be resigning. Now we know uh, he's out next week. Fun fact, he will likely still get to keep his federal pension after all of this is done. Quoting from the LA Times here, quote, based on formulas outlined in a paper released by the research service earlier this year, I didn't figure out what the research service was, it is estimated that Hunter 43 would receive an annual payment of at least $32,538 due to his congressional pension, which he can begin accessing when he turns 62, end quote. Well, that's good. So, uh, that, that it, seems all very fair, in and, fact, fair and right that you, you get to profit from your malfeasance. Yeah. It's it's it definitely goes against some of the foundational like jurisprudence in this country that you get to while well, you're as as we've discussed, you're not supposed to be able to profit from being uh, from illegal, nefarious you know conduct. And uh, it looks like he's not going to not profit. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we'll get to take that money out. Also, so, if, you're, um, if you're trying to start like a right wing political dynasty, it's really helpful if you name your fail son after yourself, oh, yeah. because I'm still convinced yeah. that a lot of voters who voted for Duncan Hunter only did so uh-huh. because they oh, thought yeah. it was his dad, because Duncan Hunter Jr. Sure never happening. put the junior on his campaign materials. No. He always used he? the Why same name as his father. He just suddenly got younger and in better shape. And more smug. Peter uh, Peter somehow. Thiel's like anyway. vampire businesses have like amazing. <laughs> so uh, just to to like tie a little bit of a bow on this one relating to the ability to continue to withdraw your pension no matter how corrupt you are, uh, the U.S. Office of Personnel Management sent a letter to a man named Adam Andres. 
Andrzejewski, I really cannot pronounce that last name, who is the CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. He then provided that letter to the San Diego Union Tribune when it came to talking about the fact that Duncan Hunter is going to continue to pull this pension, even though he is corrupt as all can be. Um, The letter states that no member of Congress has ever been stripped of their retirement benefits due to a conviction, regardless of how corrupt they are. So um, I guess if you're in Congress you not only get to write the laws, you get to choose whether or not you have to abide by them and nobody holds you to account for it basically ever. Um, Yeah, especially if you're a Republican. If you're a Republican, you can just get away with whatever the hell you want and no one's going to hold your feet to the fire on it because that's just how our system works. It's always the Democrats who have to, you know, cop to the, you know, any any kind of corruption. They're the ones who get pegged immediately and are forced out of office really quick. You know, with the Katie Hell thing, I, I'm, I'm still so angry about that. I mean, the fact that she was forced out because of uh, revenge porn from her shitty ex-husband yeah. and, you know, some questionable ethical decisions regarding, you know, well, romantic was, entanglement. And that was the, that was the thing is the, like... None of that... The, the allegations against her that she had an affair with someone who's a staffer in her office have pretty yeah. much, like, evaporated. Um, it's It's yeah. been admitted that she was having an affair with a staffer on her campaign, which is unethical but, but not illegal. But having, a sta- it, having an yes. affair with a staffer yes. in your congressional office is illegal under congressional rules. It wasn't it for is. a very long time. It took Correct. decades for that to finally change. Yes. Uh, but even when it comes to, like, you know— even beyond like the the Democrat GOP divide, like let's not forget that the congressmen and senators or Congress congressional representatives and senators are both exempted from insider trading laws, even though they're making oh, laws yeah. that directly affect the companies that they're invested in. Like there is so much grift in being a congressperson, or so much possible oh, yeah. grift in being a congressperson yeah. or a senator, and they have zero reason to fix that because, as Mr. Hunter uh, very well illustrates, if you're going to lose your job, at least you've got like all of these backstops. Of corruption to make sure that you maintain your generational wealth. Yeah, so um, I think we need to fix this, uh, and I really, really hope that somebody in Congress gets around to actually doing something, but that would mean policing themselves, and I don't really hold out much hope that that's something they're going to actually do. So. Yeah, speaking of speaking of groups that do a terrible job policing themselves, let's talk <laughs> oh, about the police. I set that one up good. <laughs> ah, shit. So there was a really big scandal that broke uh, last week about uh, LAPD's elite metro division and what they've been doing with sort of like tagging certain folks as members of gangs. Let's go ahead and go yeah. through the details on this one. Okay, so first of all, isn't it always... Metro, the elite metro division, like I mean, the, the, the I mean, the elite division. part is just sort of like I, I'm putting that in square scare quotes, uh, but the, for sure, but you know, like I mean, metro it division was actually is, listed that way in the L.A. Times, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think the I think the elite part is really just like an adjective they slap on there to make it seem more <sighs> credible because it's just called metro division, but, but they always say the elite yeah. metro division to make it seem like you know, yeah, these are like. Better cop cops. They're like, the green these berets. Are like super yeah. cops. <laughs> Obviously, more so highly the fun paid thing here, cops. 
this is true, uh, especially because they aren't, aren't they some of the ones that do like uh, I believe there were allegations surrounding overtime pay and uh, well, they also they well, so like anyway. Metro gets called out to do all the crowd control stuff. They do a lot of like yeah, um, uh, what they call saturation enforcement, like when LAPD decides oh, I was thinking like of CHP when it comes to the overtime scandal. Sorry, yeah, I mean LAPD is also like you know they book a lot of overtime and there has been some scandals there, but I think the one you're thinking of was CHP. But Metro also gets called yeah. out all the time. Anytime there's like a high profile event or like a big thing that goes down metro division is who gets called in to like deal with that and that includes a lot of like yeah. gang interventions it includes crowd control uh, which has resulted in some lawsuits like the the mayday riots back in 2007 <laughs> like yep. and when i say riot there i should mention that it's a cop riot not like a regular citizen riot it was a, a full-on cop riot that happened Fun. in macarthur park um but anyways let's let's talk nice. about the scandal that just broke <sighs> Okay, so basically, uh, the article which we're going to be linking in the description for the podcast, as always, uh, really goes into the detail, and I 100% recommend that everybody reads it because it's not very long, but I'm not going to read all of it to you here. But we're going to quote a chunk of it right now from the LA Times saying, quote, more than a dozen Los Angeles police officers with the elite Metro Division, and again, that's where we're quoting, it does say the elite Metro Division, are being investigated on suspicion of falsifying information they gathered during stops and wrongly portraying people as gang members or associates according to multiple sources, end quote. Um, this shit's wild. So basically what's going on here is that the body cameras and like witness testimony do not corroborate the uh, records that the cops were taking and, you know, filing with their paperwork when they were filing these reports after the fact. So it's basically the cops are caught, you know, telling lies and using uh, accusations of gang affiliation to uh, basically be act as predators on, on the, these community members. And, this is something that has arguably been going on for just decades and decades and decades, especially in like South LA. Yeah. And it was absolutely part of what was going on in like the Silver Lake Echo Park area. I've spoken with so many people um, in the last few years once, you know, my eyes were open to the fact that the gentrification process uh, was something that was extraordinarily nefarious and ongoing and deeply rooted in the systems that we have in place. Um, the number of stories that I've heard relating to people saying like, well, when I grew up in Los Angeles, like you did not go to Silver Lake and Echo Park because that was gang territory. You just didn't go there. But now it's all so nice and clean. It's just like, oh, oh yeah, okay, so you don't know the story behind what happened here. Um, because other people have told me about the ways in which the gang injunctions were used to basically just massively, intrusively over-police these communities and tear them apart because they were using any kind of a situation where, like, if you showed up to a family barbecue and, like, your cousin, like, once removed showed up and they're in a gang, you are now gang-affiliated because you are in a space with them and you're also related to them, however distantly. And that was enough to put you on the list as being gang affiliated and for the LAPD to basically create a license for themselves to give you hell and make it where 
everything you did was under a a you know a massive magnifying glass. Well, and, yeah, and, and Ace had a tweet. Um, God, I had I want to say it was almost a year ago. It was a while ago, but where he was talking about how he had a juvenile client, uh, Ace being obviously our, oh, yeah. our resident public defender. Uh, he had a Ace juvenile Katana. client who you know was stopped by LAPD, and they're like, "Are you in a gang?" And he's like, "No." And they're like, "Do you do you know anyone who's in a gang?" And he's like, "Well, yeah, my cousin's in this gang." And they're like, "Now you're gang affiliated," and that goes on your record like, for a uh, long time because there's no way to expunge that because that those data sets that LAPD is collecting aren't overseen by the courts, right? Like, once no. that goes into the database, it's there for life. So even though this kid has, is not in a gang, has never affiliated with a gang, LAPD has yeah. marked him as affiliated with a gang. And we know through some of the, the records that Stop LAPD Spying has gotten about laser and predictive policing that... Yep. Uh, it, that LAPD is routinely labeling people who aren't in gangs as gang members and using that to justify more enforcement in certain neighborhoods. Like, the, the report that came through that caused this internal affairs investigation for the Metro Division came out of the San Fernando Valley. People in South LA have been complaining about this for decades, but that's never triggered, yeah. triggered an internal affairs investigation. <laughs> and, like, it's really easy to see... Why would an investigation over Yeah, it's really easy to see where, like, the class it. breakdown is coming here and, like, yep. who gets paid attention to and who is it when they complain to LAPD LAPD pays attention and notices and does something about it when you have entire communities that have been complaining yeah. for decades that get completely ignored despite the fact that we have mountains of evidence that this is happening yeah so uh, LAPD Chief Moore said in a statement relating to this that, quote, an officer's integrity must be absolute. There is no place in the department for any individual who would purposely falsify information on a department report, end quote. Um, well, Chief Moore, looks like you got some house cleaning to do. Uh, good luck with that. And uh, yeah, disarm them all while you're at it. please. Ha. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, real quick before we move on, I just got a report from uh, PM Beers uh, who just hit me up on Twitter, like literally as we're in the middle of recording this. Uh, and oh, yeah? I am very sorry to report that I believe this is the first LAPD murder of the year happened just today on the west side of Los Angeles oh, at Venice and Sepulveda. Uh, the video that I was sent seems to show LAPD has roped off the shell station that's on the southwestern corner of Venice and Sepulveda. Uh, an unhoused man named John, who was apparently dealing with mental illness and lived in the area sort of on the border of Culver City, was murdered by LAPD today. I don't have any more details about what led up to that, what the circumstances were. Uh, but I believe this is, I, I haven't seen any other, um, you know, on-duty incidents reports um, for this year, but that's, you know, 11 days into the year, LAPD has already racked up their first murder. And we're quickly approaching 600 people murdered by cops in LA County since Jackie Lacey took office in 2013. And that number I just keeps going up, and no one is getting prosecuted for that. Um, and it's something we're just going to keep harping on until it effing happens or until we kick Jackie Lacey out of office, uh, hopefully in yeah. favor of someone like Rachel Rossi, um, perhaps even George Gascon. Oh, like, so you know, good. Anyone would be better than Lacey at this point. I think one would be better yeah. than the other, but like anything we can do to get Jackie Lacey <laughs> out of office. Can't, can't, and can't tell which one it is that you think would be better. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> sent home into retirement, into her, her very large house that she lives in to not not prosecute cops anymore would be great. This also all comes on the heels of her cynically announcing an investigation of Harvey Weinstein, which A, is kind of laughable that she's going after Harvey Weinstein after she didn't go after the Bikram guy for very similar allegations. 
didn't go after oh, yeah. serial killer Ed Buck. Also, as yep. I've mentioned, has not gone after killer cops. And it, I think it's interesting to note that Jackie Lacey, you know, her announcement of going after Weinstein on the day that his trial in New York starts actually risks screwing up his trial in New York because it kind of poisons the well for jury selection. And, you know, she made national headlines with that oh, move. That's true. And no one really knows why, but everyone who pays attention to Jackie Lacey seems to be of the opinion that this is a cynical pre-election move, that she's hoping that she's hoping that a lot of people will just vote on the headline, that she's going after this guy that everyone sees <sighs> as a villain, uh, and will ignore her record of just being an absolutely terrible district attorney. So, yeah. you know, come March 3rd, we'll, uh, we'll see how that one goes down. Yeah, there's effectively, in, in, in a great many ways, there's really not much of a difference between her being in office and her not being in office, because she just doesn't... Yeah. She chooses to abdicate so many of the responsibilities of that position just because uh, I, I don't know why. I, I can't even fathom what because it is she that's believes going through in the system. Head, but, like, fundamentally, I think she thinks uh, that what she's doing is right. And, you know, it's, it's going to be... So just not prosecuting any of these killer cops is... Yeah. Is that that's the right? God yeah, and damn. you know you you can't question the integrity of law enforcement. Like law and order must be maintained. Oh, of it is an interesting counterpoint to what just happened with Chesa Bowden up in San Francisco because now that he's been officially sworn in, he has sent several prosecutors packing, including a prosecutor who was infamous for sending an innocent man to jail and costing the city of San Francisco a $13 million lawsuit for wrongful imprisonment. That lady is no longer employed by the county of San Francisco, and that is exactly what we need to see happening here in L.A. Oh, yes, we do. With prosecutors yes, we who do. engage in malicious and unethical prosecution, losing their jobs, not staying in their same position, and moving up the ranks without any consequence. So... Um, we'll keep you up to date probably next week as we find out more about the shooting of this man named John over on the west side of L.A. Uh, it's you know unfortunate that pretty much every other week for this next year we're probably going to be reporting on an LAPD murder and a, a yep. L.A. County Sheriff's Office murder because that's about the rate each of those offices kills someone about every other week in a year. Um, those numbers are down from their highs earlier in the 2000s when it was... 100 people shot in a year. Those numbers have definitely come way down, but they're still far too high. You know, in my opinion, one person murdered by the cops is too many people murdered by the cops. All right, so let's let's go ahead and yeah. turn our attention to the north end of the valley <laughs> and another uh, terrible situation where our city leaders and county government and state government have failed to do their jobs protecting our community. And I'm talking, of course, about our least favorite mountain in the entire L.A. basin, Aliso Canyon, which is the second largest gas storage facility in the nation and caused one of the largest methane leaks I'm in sorry, world history, so evacuating a community of about 40,000 up around Porter Ranch. Some really big stuff happened this week at the county board, and then in terms of a lawsuit that is being fi or a lawsuit that's uh, currently in the works. So let's start with the county board and talk about what they did. So last Tuesday, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors unanimously called on Governor Newsom to expedite. I almost said Governor, and uh, I should have just gone with it, but whatever. Uh, to expedite the closure of the Aliso Canyon Natural Gas Storage Facility, which of course is the facility in Porter Ranch that, as we have discussed many times, was the site of the single largest release of methane in U.S. history. Uh, Supervisor Janice Hahn added an amendment to the motion before it passed to make sure that any plans to shut down the facility don't just relocate this problem into someone else's backyard. Um, she is specifically quoted on her official website saying that, quote, 
I support closing Aliso Canyon, but I want to make sure that doesn't result in more natural gas being stored at the facility in Playa del Rey. The Playa del Rey facility is a risk to the surrounding neighborhoods and to our environment. I stand with my residents who want this facility closed, and I am asking Governor Newsom to study the feasibility of closing it, end quote. Um, of course, SoCal Gas spokeswoman Christine Detz uh, had to try and get in front of this by saying that the Aliso Canyon facility is needed in order to keep the lights on. Uh, that is the line that they have been telling us for years, and uh, there's reasons not to believe it. But she says, yeah. quote, in the last two months alone, Aliso Canyon has been needed on more than two dozen days to help prevent spikes in electricity prices and to ensure reliable heat and hot water for millions of families across the Los Angeles region, end quote. So I would love, I just love the fact that the spikes in electricity prices are apparently worth the potential release of like hundreds of thousands of tons of natural gas containing known carcinogens uh, and just killing people like that's that's worth it the fact that solar water heaters exist and could easily be installed oh, across yeah. the la basin the fact that we could have solar panels like neighborhood grids that feed that kind of stuff and neighborhood battery storage that would allow you to like still have hot water on a day when the sun's not fully out or it's cold and rainy like there's so many better ways to solve that issue that socal gas is opposed to us investing in and it's been a real fight to get LADWP to finally sign off on the idea that we don't need gas power plants. That there is a way for us to power the LA basin, to power the city and the county of LA that doesn't require us to poison our environment. And it's just kind of amazing that we have to keep having this fight over and over again because LA City Council and Eric Garcetti have said we should shut down Aliso Canyon. Governor Newsom has said, I will shut down Aliso Canyon. Now the LA County Board has said, you should shut down Aliso Canyon. It's been six years since the leak. Six years of the stuff just poisoning people, and we can't get any motion on this. So uh, the, at the board meeting, residents who supported the motion also asked that the board use its subpoena power to force SoCal Gas to publish a full list of the chemicals that were released in the 2015-2016 gas leak uh, and during efforts to control the leak. So this is where shit gets real dark. Oh, my God. Uh, this is so bad. attorneys... Yeah, so personal injury attorneys at a firm called Paris, so it's Paris like the city but with two R's, have filed a restitution hearing brief against SoCal Gas. Quoting here, Paris alleges that SoCal Gas knowingly withheld information regarding toxic and cancer-causing chemicals from first responders and the public. This crucial information could have helped victims protect themselves, their families, and their pets from the suffering and harm that arose from exposure to these horrific chemicals. More specifically, uranium was discovered to exceed EPA maximum contaminant levels in underground liquid near the leaking well. Uh, Arcoline, a biocide that is added to the gas, was found to be present at extremely high levels in homes months after the gas blowout. Radon, which has no safe level of exposure, was found in the gas at Aliso Canyon, as were polychlorinated biphenyls. Benzene was also detected during the blowout at 100,000 parts per billion. Many of these are known carcinogens and were present at dangerous levels. SoCal Gas never listed any of these chemical compounds in its notice to the Office of, Envi of Emergency Services, uh, nor did it provide an estimate of the quantities of the hazardous material exposure. Paris argues that in failing to do so, SoCal Gas violated federal and state laws that require the full disclosure of hazardous chemical releases and the potential health impact resulting from them. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what to say to this other than there have been 
so many experts coming out talking about just how bad this shit is. And the fact that like what really just just gets me here is like we've mentioned this before, but uh, it bears repeating like this gas storage facility. It's not like they built a bunch of tanks underground. What they did. No. Was that would took, be sensical. They took exhausted, yeah, right. Um, they took existing wells that had been tapped, and then they just they pump gas down into those wells and use that as storage because, like, it apparently wasn't leaking before. So, hey, it'll work now. Um, and on top of all of that, these uh, these wells happen to lie on a uh, a seismic fault line. So, yeah. and well, it's it's also one where. <laughs> This isn't the first time we've we've heard about these sort of like chemicals being released. Like Dr. Nordella gave a whole town hall about uh, two months ago where he talked about what was released into the air and what's still floating around there. From our experience canvassing on the ground there for Lorraine Lundquist and also for Katie Hill up in the Porter Ranch neighborhood, and when I say we, I mean ground game and myself specifically, we've had to shut down door knocking canvases because people got sick. Like I myself have like walked around in neighborhoods where like after 20 minutes of knocking doors, I was like, I feel lightheaded and weird because you're breathing in stuff that like the human body is not supposed to take in. I remember knocking Correct. on one guy's door and he's like, yeah, I didn't know what benzene was before this happened. Now I get my benzene levels checked every three months because my doctor insane. says I need to. Like a lot of doctors who treated people up in the Porter Ranch neighborhoods did not know about these chemicals before the release. Now they're really familiar with them because everyone they see is affected by this. Yeah, I mean, I also, I mean, I didn't have any ill effects when I was knocking on doors in Porter Ranch uh, for Lorraine Lundquist, but I did talk to people who are involved in uh, in class action lawsuits related to that that blowout because uh, there's a guy that I spoke to for quite some time and I got him to uh, absolutely commit to voting for Lorraine Lundquist. Yep. Um, he he was talking about his personal experience of how like he's been sick now yep. for years because he's been exposed to all of this nasty shit coming out of the ground and also like apparently it it builds up as residue on people's cars yeah overnight. no i remember seeing that like it was uh i remember seeing this weird it looked like pollen that was like all over these cars uh, on one street and i asked a guy about just, it because there were no trees around there that oof. were like pollinating trees and the guy was like yeah, oh yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah. like the benzene in the air that like gets caught in the morning uh-huh. dew and then like condenses on your car in the morning and if you don't wash it off like after a couple of days, it's going to eat away at the paint. And you're like, well, that's cool. I'm now that's breathing insane. that. That's I will say insane. the one good thing, like kind of to put a silver lining on a very like dark and destructive cloud, is that the, the blowout at Aliso Canyon caused a lot of people to realize that they have power to affect their neighborhood. And groups like Save Porter Ranch were formed to fight this from yes. ever happening again or stop it from ever happening again. And that's what gave us women like Dr. Lorraine Lundquist who are running for City Hall and trying to make a difference and seizing actual political power because they understand that this isn't just about now. That if we allow Aliso Canyon to continue to sit there, even if it's, quote, inactive, it'll be there for the next 50, 100 years, poisoning everyone around there and presenting a risk to the community because again methane it is kind of an explodey gas you know it's sort of yeah, a little you bit. know when it when it comes down to it like it goes boom real big so having an entire mountain of it there is just a really fucking terrible thing to have and like presents an ongoing and ominous threat so uh hopefully we'll have some good updates on this it's sad that we're still waiting for the the city the county and the state to actually take action and that socal gas is still fighting us let's not forget just to get in one more dig against Governor Brown, even though he's left office. 
He refused to go after Sempra Energy because his sister was on the board of Sempra Energy. Like, the powers that be are not going after SoCal Gas and the people that own Aliso Canyon and operate the wells there because they have financial interests that make them want to keep it open, that they have family members and friends and campaign donors who profit off of this thing. And until we break those bonds entirely, it's going to be an uphill battle, which is why we need to get folks like Lorraine Lundquist into City Hall. Hooray, capitalism and protecting capital, because that's what a lot of the state mechanisms are meant to do. Best hell world, best hell world timeline ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so ah. let's let's move on to another uh, potential disaster for our neighborhoods. Hey, uh, SB fun, fifty fun, fun. is back yeah. up, uh, or is back it's again. Back, uh, Scott Weiner has made some changes to it, uh, and kind it's of, a. Yeah. He's made some changes to it. Uh, probably not for yeah, the best. Yes. Um, get ready for housing Twitter to just become more of a shitstorm. It's always a shitstorm, but to become more of a shitstorm. <laughs> but let's let's talk about the changes yeah, yeah. that uh, Mr. Weiner announced on Tuesday. All right. So uh, let's just quote straight from Liam Dillon's article in the LA Times to get things rolling. Quote, New changes to Senate Bill 50 introduced on Monday will give cities and counties two years to develop plans to boost development in their communities before state mandates for greater housing density take effect. Senator Scott Weiner, Democrat of San Francisco, the bill's author, said many local government officials told him they supported more housing in their cities, but wanted more control over where it would be built, end quote. This uh, does ring very true here in Los Angeles. I remember at the um, at the council meeting where they made uh, a unanimous decision to oppose SB 50 last year, uh, I believe it was Coretz or, yeah, I think it was Coretz who got up and said, uh, we want to build more housing, but it needs to be affordable. And it's just like, bro, you can, you can do that without this bill and you just need to get up there and fight for it. And make it happen. You, the power is within your hands. Believe it or not, you are an elected official, and one of the most powerful elected officials in the country when it comes to controlling what happens in a city. You have the power to authorize the creation of a whole bunch of affordable housing. Thirty-five hundred units built per district are already authorized yep. under uh, Article Thirty-four of the California Constitution because we passed a law back in two thousand eight that said you could do it. And I'm pretty sure you've built fuck all of them. It was Measure B, and as far as I can tell, uh, none of those units are coming <sighs> yeah. online. Though I did see Mike Bonin posted something on Instagram today about affordable housing coming to Mar Vista, which is going to be 100% oh. affordable, uh, and it's going to That's serve great. people who are making 30 to 60% of the median income in the area, which over on the west side, really like, that's good. a little bit higher than other parts of the city. Uh, but then yeah, but the AMI is based on the city level, and that's, so that's, yeah. that's like actually metro area wide it's bigger than just the city of la and includes areas like santa monica and uh malibu which is fun yeah no today i learned uh but it also uh (laughs) it also uh contains a significant number of units that are going to be set aside for people with developmental disabilities uh and it's going to have like one bedroom two bedroom and uh three bedroom units like no studios in there so we're actually talking about big nice units that families could actually inhabit comfortably and that's really what we need to be seeing especially on the west side where right up the street from this is going in like the new Amazon headquarters and that new 
absolutely oh, yeah. hideous the steps that they finally finished, um, taking away <laughs> my favorite useless parking lot in the city of LA where Sony would hold all of their like publicity stunts. Uh, but it's uh, like, fun. we are seeing some affordable units come online, but it's very spotty district to district. And it's also taken them like effing forever. The, you know, Measure B was passed in... Uh, 2008. 2008? And, and, and when I call yeah. it Measure B, I don't want to confuse that with the the uh, Charter thing. Amendment B that was on yeah. the last ballot. You know, Measure B was like a city law. Uh, but yeah, every council district should be building these affordable units. Should have had, should have already have had them built, I should say, to oh, yeah. use the, uh, the blueprint. It's been a decade. Come yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's it's hard to see like why we need SB 50 when SB 50 like seems to only result in more market rate units or will only result in more market rate units. And we're already seeing plenty of those yeah. come online. Like when you see a studio for $3,500 next to a train station, we don't need more of those. That's we not, totally don't need useful. more of those. Correct. Correct. So this is a quick reminder for everyone. This is literally the same bill as it was last year, um, but with a couple of further tweaks to satisfy more of the naysayers who didn't want to relinquish local control, which is, of course, one of the favorite buzzwords of every government official in the state of California, um, whether it's something they, they like or something that drives them up the wall. Um, State Senator Portentino was the one who effectively nuked this bill last year when he held it up in the Appropriations Committee and turned passing it into a two-year-long process. So actually, uh, the reason why this is coming up now is because uh, because of what Portentino did last year, uh, Wiener has until the 31st of this month to get it out of the Senate and back into the process to get rolling again, which means that it's basically going to have to be like an all hands on deck if we want to actually have this come through. Uh, of course, this was also one of the bills that kind of survived the May massacre of uh, housing bills. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's weird. So anyway, yeah, let's talk about what happened in terms of changes here. Uh, so now... These new changes would allow uh, local leaders to get two years, once the bill is signed, to create a development blueprint that caters to their region's specific needs, according to Wiener's office. This blueprint would need to basically zone for the same number of units that would otherwise be created under SB 50, but cities would be free to meet that unit count however it is that they saw fit, so long as they didn't concentrate development in low-income areas. So basically, one of the things that uh, I... I've for, yeah, I think it was Kretz. <laughs> I keep bragging on Kretz today. Eh, sorry, bro. Um, but yeah, the, he'll uh, survive. I believe he's the one who um, was afraid that SB50 was going to turn the West Side into Dubai, um, which is just proof that he literally did not read the bill at all. Also, if you making, look at what's, uh, if you look at what's being developed on the West Side, that's already <laughs> yeah. happening with or without SB50. Like that's coming because there's a lot of yeah, penitentiaries to be built. This is true, but he was afraid of it happening in the uh, in the areas where all of his rich constituents live in their lovely little single family homes, um, and it would impact the neighborhood qualities that they're so accustomed to. Um, anyway, uh, it wouldn't change it into Dubai, no matter how much you wanted to, because under the old provisions, it only would have allowed like six story buildings in some areas, eight story buildings in areas that are definitely not in Koretz's district. Um, but anyway, we we digress. So. Uh, the big thing here is that you'd be allowed to build in whatever style works for you as long as you get your potential density, like unit count, your possible unit count that could be built to match with what uh, SB50 would otherwise designate in that area. So it's, it's basically giving them flexibility. So 
the cities would then have to submit their plans to the State Department of Housing and Community Development, and if it was approved, the city would receive an exemption from most of the provisions of SB 50. Um, the cities would also they would also have to meet or beat a goal that is laid out elsewhere in SB 50 to reduce the number of car trips, um, which is uh, good. Thank you. Um, glad to see that, but also market rate housing ain't going to solve that problem. Um, Wiener's bill would also require projects that are larger than 10 units to contribute funding or space for low-income housing. But, of course, because they give you that option of either or, so you can do funding or you can do space, that means that the projects will not actually be including low-income housing most of the time, as they can just pay an in-lieu fee instead of actually putting it on the ground. So this is one of those things like when we're talking about things like a linkage fee in the past here in L.A., which I believe it past and is doing nothing as far as i can tell yep um the, the this is the problem here is that if you allow developers who are building you know apartment buildings with 100 units if they're allowed to just say well we're gonna build affordable housing somewhere else or we're gonna you know chip in some funding to uh, facilitate the construction of affordable housing somewhere else it basically just doesn't happen because you end up kicking that money over into a fund that then is never nearly enough to actually get the damn things built. But and like, it's also you, not going you, to, it's, <laughs> it's probably going to lead to like a new form of redlining where like the affordable yes. and low income units are going to get built yeah. in poor neighborhoods. We're not going to actually develop yep. mixed income neighborhoods that we actually Certainly need. not built into the buildings that are being built now. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have neighborhoods for rich people and neighborhoods for poor people. And it's going to become, it's going <sighs> yeah. to become the same cycle where neighborhoods for rich people have really good access to transit that they don't necessarily need while poor neighborhoods are still left out of the transit boom that they desperately need. Like yep. building, Absolutely. you know, like the, when you go to Wilshire and Western and uh, there's no, sorry, Wilshire and Venice. And there's that gigantic building across the street from the red line station that has like a seven store parking garage. And you're like, the people who live there don't need to take the train and probably aren't taking the train yeah. every day to get to work. They're probably taking the train yeah. as like a luxury when they want to go to like a Kings game or a Clippers game or, you know, to go out to the bars on a Friday or Saturday night. They're not taking it like Monday yeah. through Friday to get to work when you have other people that are doing these insanely long bus and train commutes because they're not allowed to live close to the transit options that they need. We need parking maximums. We just need parking maximums in the city of LA. I'm sorry. That's like, that is probably one of the biggest things. Like if you, anyway, we, I digress. Uh, so uh, regarding SB 50, tenants rights activists are unsurprisingly not thrilled with the bill. Here's what Christina Livingston, who is the statewide executive director of ACE, of course, that is the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Uh, this is what she had to say, quote, we are disappointed to see that Scott Weiner continues to disregard proposals from the housing justice community to increase the affordable housing requirement and protect communities experiencing displacement. SB 50, with its amendments, still puts many poor and working class communities in the firing line of real estate developers who are building the housing that makes them millions, not the housing that communities need, end quote. Decommodify uh, housing. Decommodify housing. This is exactly housing. the right point. 100%, yes. So um, it's also worth pointing out here that... Uh, <laughs> the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted last month to oppose SB 50 yet again. This is the third time, I believe, that they've uh, chosen to oppose Wiener on this. Yep. And Wiener is, of course, the state senator for San Francisco. So, And he um, also used to be on the uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors before he moved yeah. up to the state Senate. So his, his yeah. uh, own colleagues on the board, or former colleagues, not really down with the plan. Not happy with him. Yeah. And also, uh, remember... 
when in doubt, figure out where the money is coming from. And the huge amount of money that Scott Wiener gets from real estate developers really tells you where his focus is. Because even if his heart is in this for the right, for the right reasons and he's really genuinely thinking that he's going to solve our housing problem, he's doing it in a way that is going to directly benefit the kinds of people who are making massive contributions to his campaigns because that's just what he's doing. Well, it's like, it, this it's is, also one of these weird ideas that like we can build ourselves out of this when we don't really need to. Like, oh, absolutely. The, while the ACE report on the number of, of vacant units in L.A. has kind of like been withdrawn and is, is getting revised, they did a similar study in San Francisco and found that San Francisco oh, yeah. definitely has enough empty units to house every like person without permanent chance aside to this SB50 fight. When Scott Weiner had his press conference on Tuesday, he was met by some protesters from Moms for Housing. Now, you might know Moms for Housing as the group that has have been occupying an empty house in Oakland that is owned by a corporate landlord named Wedgwood. Uh, they've been in, locked in a court battle with Wedgwood to see if they could stay in the house. Uh, as of yesterday, which would have been Friday, because uh, we're recording on a Saturday, they lost that fight in the afternoon. The judge ruled against them, saying, quote, the court considered and denied Miss Walker's request to proffer testimony through expert witnesses concerning federal and international legal authorities regarding the right to housing. The court recognizes the importance of these issues, but as as raised in connection with Miss Walker's claim of right to possession, finds that they are outside the scope of the proceeding. So basically, Miss Walker is one of the moms for housing who says that we should have a right to stay in this house that is empty because the landlord is not getting the exorbitant rent that they think that they deserve, and we should have a right to live in this house, or someone in the community should. But we see, yeah. as we have time and again, the court side with property over human rights. And this one uh, is, again, a loss. People have been organizing in Oakland to show up at the property in question to resist the eviction. We'll keep you up to date on what happens with that. But we can't miss the connection here where we have Scott Wiener, who takes a lot of money from private developers and for-profit developers, pushing a bill that will enrich these private developers who are literally keeping houses empty when people need a place to live. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. going to be an uphill battle in the courts, but we don't have too many options left. And the idea of literally seizing the means of housing is one that is becoming more and more palatable, I think, as people understand that the real violence in the system isn't somebody living in a house that they're not paying rent for. It's people being locked out and dying on the street because they can't afford a place to live. Yeah, and it's uh, one quick like silver lining to all of this is that um, the folks over at Moms for Housing are uh, amazing, and they had a tweet that came out right when this ruling was handed down saying, quote, we are not surprised by the ruling. We understand that the court's hands are tied because in this country, property rights are valued over human rights. That is why the California Constitution needs to be amended to include the right to housing. Hashtag save mom's house. Um, Hell yes. yes. They are so fundamentally right on that one. Uh, I am here for that fight. Uh, hope all y'all are too, because... I, I, I'm really starting to struggle to really see how else we solve this problem. Um, yeah, they're right. Let's let's do this. So, like, 
we don't necessarily need to build more. Like, we should. We should be upgrading some of our housing stock. We oh, should yeah, be yeah, building yeah. sustainable, Absolutely. resilient buildings. But we should be building them, like, Homes guarantee and a Green New Deal for public housing. Exactly, yes. 100%. And actually, on that topic of building more affordable, sustainable, and resilient stuff, we, hey, have, some, that. we have some good news when it comes to exempting certain developments from CEQA, and that's the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, which has gotten used and abused a little bit to stop some development. It's finally been yes. revised and is already being like relied upon by LA City Council to get bridge shelters built, to get regular shelters and permanent supportive housing built. So let's talk about the latest expansion of those exemptions. So uh, the bill that we're going to be referencing here, uh, we, there, there are two bills. They're both from Miguel Santiago. Um, the new one is Assembly Bill 1907, which was introduced by Santiago on Wednesday last week. And he's looking to expand the provisions from his uh, successfully passed AB 1197 from last year, which passed through both houses of the legislature without much fuss. I believe it actually passed unanimously in both houses um, because nobody really seemed to care because it was only going to impact Los Angeles. And what it did was it gave a green light to streamlining the sequa of um, rather, for streamlining the approval process of anything, any of these shelters relating to solving the homeless crisis uh, by giving them the green light to say, yeah, you don't need to do a full environmental impact uh, report. So uh, the... Uh, this is really meant to try to stop um, bad faith organizations um, like NIMBY groups and, and uh, these, these people who are coming in as bad faith actors and are saying, uh, we don't want this kind of a development in our backyard, so we're going to say that it's going to be detrimental to the local environment. And using that strategy to stop development or in some cases to basically extort developers uh, or the city for funds in order to uh, sustain their uh, grifting lifestyle. Uh, who knows? So the, there's, you know, green mailing is a thing that we've talked about in the past and absolutely is a thing that needs to be yeah. dealt with. Um, AB 1197 was set to do to get around that for solving uh, the, you know, the bandaid or putting in place the bandaid measures that, uh, our elected officials are capable of doing relating to the homelessness crisis. Um, and now these, this new bill would really extend the provisions from 1197, which again only impacted LA. It would expand those rules to be the entire state. But it will also include expanding the streamlining process to low-income housing projects that are reserved for individuals and families who make 80% or less of a region's median income. So this is really good because if they expand this, that means you can then help expedite the process of creating the kinds of housing like what we were just talking about uh, in, in, in Bonin's district where we need to be building more of this housing. Like workforce housing is what's, uh, what people refer to when it's like um, up to 120% of the area median income. Uh, affordable housing is up to 80%. Very affordable housing uh, or, or very low income affordable housing is like below 60%. Um, so it's, we have a, a, a crisis of housing supply across all of the, the lower end of the affordability spectrum and helping to streamline that process, uh, up to that 80% mark would be great. Uh, so overall, this just seems like it's a great idea. So thank you very much, Miguel, for, uh, putting this bill out there. Um, 
But he did, of course, immediately uh, throw some caveats in and said that he's not sure that it's going to survive in its current form uh, going through the House because this time around people are actually going to care uh, because it impacts more places than Los Angeles was the, the subtext there. So um, this could definitely help improve the process, but CEQA is so so due for some much larger systemic overhauls, especially if we're going to be having any hope of implementing a Green New Deal here in California. So this law has been on the books, on, been on the books now for like five decades plus, and we've learned a lot in that time. And of course, if I'm being mistaken in my dates, I apologize. Uh, but it's been it's been around for a long time, like half a century at this point. We really, really need to be revamping the whole damn thing in order to preserve the best bits and scrap the parts that have left so many of our infrastructure projects stalled out or massively behind schedule. Uh, and of course, any any revamp of CEQA really, <laughs> personally, my opinion is that we should be banning building any new freeways uh, or expanding existing ones or really like widening basically any streets because not how you solve any of our problems. Uh, and we need to cut it out. Like we cannot continue to be expanding the infrastructure for cars and car reliant housing projects um, around the city, like that, that housing project that has been spoken about on, uh, LA podcast and on here up in, uh, is it, it's an antelope Valley, I think was where they were talking yeah, about the, this, the gigantic, like, like purely car based yeah. community that they're building. 100%. It's, it's just like, ranch, okay, where we're going to recreate. Called. Yeah. They're going to basically like try to recreate Irvine up in the <laughs> Northeast corner of the Valley. It's like, guys, no. Look, hey, Chris, I can tell this. you from, from living in a gigantic, like get <laughs> no. fucked city in the desert that, you know, it's a great idea that like deserts have lots of water and they stay very cool and they have very low energy demands when you're building like gigantic McMansions. Like there are no coming from like an, a Phoenix no. development perspective. I see no problems with a freeway based community that's going to have a ton of grass and need a lot of water and demand lots of power out in there in the high, de high desert. I just I don't see any problems arising from that. Yeah. So However, on, what we should on a, do on is reform Sequa to ban all that shit. So sorry. Well, on, on kind of a good note, uh, if you do want to show up and let the uh, homelessness and poverty committee know what you think about their oh, yeah, plans for absolutely. building shelter, which I got to say, like, not all of this stuff is bad, but. They're having a meeting on Wednesday, uh, January 15th. It's going to be at 3 p.m. It is going to be in room 1010 in City Hall. Uh, they are going to be talking about spending several million dollars on some shelters and bridge shelter facilities and talk about some affordable housing developments. Uh, it would be really good to show up and let them know what you think about that stuff. Uh, you can always check the agenda at LA City uh, Clerk Connect. Find out exactly what's going on if you want to make public comment. And again, it is going to be open to public public comment. I encourage you to show up and make your voice heard. Uh, again, it is a little bit weird time, 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, a lot of people at work. But if you do have the chance, show up and give them the what for, especially because this is going to be connected directly to our next topic because it turns out that Measure HHH is actually building units. And here I thought they were just sitting on a massive, like, dragon horde of cash that they got from our sales tax. But after four years, we have finally opened our first Triple H housing units. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, on Monday this past week, uh, a new 62-unit housing project located at 88th in Vermont was finally officially opened. It is the first of about 20 projects to do so, while the rest of them remain under construction. Uh, work will begin on another 30 Proposition HHH projects this year, 
in theory. So this project, which is creatively called 88th in Vermont, uh, was scheduled to open in October of last year, but there were three projects that were also supposed to open before the end of 2019, and this was the only one that managed to slide in under that deadline, though they definitely did not hit the October deadline. Uh, they actually mm-hmm. opened it up a little bit like as a soft open in December or something, um, but the official opening was on Monday last week. So uh, they waited to do that grand opening ceremony because of reasons. Um, so here are some of the details relating to this particular uh, structure. So it's got 46 units of supporting supportive housing uh, for adults aged 18 to 25, uh, v- uh, veterans, uh, and households with people experiencing chronic homelessness. So there are another 14 units that are set aside for very low-income families and individuals, and uh, one of those families was actually being used as like a token family to uh, represent what was going on here uh, at that opening ceremony, and you know, it's great to see that they've got housing now for this like family of seven who had been stuck with nowhere to go and uh, were living on the uh, basically couch surfing and then living in their car for a, uh, a long period of time waiting for this kind of housing to actually get built. Um, but I digress. So there are also two units on site for uh, managers to be living in. So this is one of those kind of facilities that has 24-hour wraparound services included in it, and uh, that includes having people on staff that live there. So uh, it's also going to include, or it does include already, a youth and family support center that's going to be giving job training, academic resources, and services for local youth. Uh, rents, just so you're aware of what these things tend to cost, are between um, $473 a month for a studio up to $703 a month for a three-bedroom unit. Uh, of course, these are very much subsidized by local and federal funds because there's no way you can find a rent like that anywhere else in Los Angeles. Overall, this project cost a little over $34 million, with just under $9.7 million coming from HHH. So the per unit cost is a whopping, and get ready for this, $549,500 per unit, purportedly due largely to the, increase in, the increases in construction costs But it doesn't even rank as the most expensive of the HHH projects, which clock in at over $600,000 per unit. So the Housing and Community Investment Department uh, is working on projects, and they're they're the ones who are tracking where the Proposition HHH funds are going, and they've got a bunch of details on their website that we're going to link to. And right now, the plans are for what was supposed to be 10,000 units has now dropped down to 7,484 units. And uh, one of the ways that the city of LA seems to be trying... Yeah, that's not quite 10,000. No, it's it's fallen. Um, And I I believe that they were trying to goose the numbers a little bit by relying on, like, reclassifying some existing housing stock uh, as being, like, retrofitted under HHH to become supportive housing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of wild. Like, that that 10,000 number was clearly something that uh, was pitched and was used to pass the ballot initiative uh, to raise our sales tax by, like, a quarter of a cent. Um, it, it, it's They've backtracked because they, they realized they couldn't do what they said they were going to do, and now we're down to 75% of what was originally promised, and it's taking a lot longer than it was supposed to. So yeah. of the 7,484 units, 5,773, so a little over two-thirds of them, are going to be coming with services for chronically homeless vet- people, vets, and young adults. Um, 
The another 1,587 units are going to be for regular affordable housing uh, that's reserved for low-income tenants. So it's going to be a mix of different types of housing, um, but it's this is like as much as we need to be building this desperately, this is so not even close to enough. And until we really just like actually take some massive steps toward fixing it, we're, we're the hole is just going to keep getting bigger and it's going to be harder and harder to dig ourselves out of it. We need public social housing and we need to just decommodify the housing market entirely if we're going to have any hope of actually solving this. Well, it's good to see like some of the progress on this coming. It's taking, you know, again, absolutely forever. And I think it also points to something that we do need to address when we talk about housing, especially affordable housing, is how expensive it is to build in the city of L.A. and sort of what we can do to like bring those prices down for affordable units. Because when you talk to like private developers or even nonprofit developers, that's their main argument for why they can't build affordable or why they don't want to, especially for profit developers. Because if you have to spend, you know, six hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars just building a unit, then you're yeah. certainly not going to want to charge like a small amount of money for that. Like you're going to have to demand higher rents for that. It and doesn't, it's, it doesn't pencil out, they say. Yep. Which is understandable. When when you're uh, when you're going for a profit, um, you're certainly not going to like not go for a profit. In fact, you legally have to go for a profit. You can get sued by your shareholders for not doing that. Yeah. It also kind of you know also brings up the question of like why we're not looking into revising more housing stock and why when housing stock does get renovated and turned into more sustainable and useful housing stock it also costs an arm and a leg like i saw that when i was in palms and a lot of the dodo you know style uh, apartment buildings were getting seismic retrofits that seismic retrofit was used as a reason to get around LA's RSO increase the rent yeah. a bunch and then tell the current tenants yep. oh i know you've had like reasonable rent but now that i've fixed the building so it doesn't collapse and kill you in an earthquake yeah. well now i have to charge a heck of a lot more money or i'm going to tack like a couple hundred dollars onto your rent for the next 18 months because you have to share some of the cost yeah it's almost like we need to actually have a housing authority in this city that builds housing and maintains housing and, you know, provides for that basic human need for shelter because the market clearly ain't going to do it and we need to step up and find a way to fix that. Anyway, um, this a little bit more context here. Uh, last week, actually, uh, Governor Newsom announced uh, his plans for the budget. And one of the things that was included in that is he's asking the legislature for $1.4 billion in this year's budget to pay for um, covering monthly rents for people, building more shelters, and providing treatment for those who are struggling with finding long-term housing. So one of the uh, things that has come up from time to time and is actually probably the, like the single most effective way of combating homelessness is to step in and like help people with an emergency rent fund. Like if you can cover those like two months of rent that they're behind on, uh, you can stop the eviction process in so many cases. And stopping people from becoming homeless in the first place is absolutely the single most cost-effective mechanism for dealing with this problem. Because as we've discussed, it's extremely expensive in our current state to be building new housing supply. And you basically, we've all of our, our, our current 
supply of permanent supportive housing and everything else are already filled to capacity. There is no space at any of these facilities. The only place where we have any space is in like some of the most uh, dangerous shelters available for folks in Skid Row uh, or in poorly maintained facilities like the, the women's shelter up in Hollywood, which has some real horror stories that we've talked about previously. Um, there's, there is nowhere for people to go. Which is why the Boise v. Martin's uh, or Martin v. Boise rather uh, ruling is so important. Is that until the cities step in and actually deal with this shit, they really cannot be allowed to arrest people and penalize them for simply existing in spaces where they have nowhere else to go. Um, and also, side note, fuck you, Dr. Drew. You are a toxic person who is making all of this worse. Go away. Oh um, my god, anyway, so terrible. He really is. Uh, I'm sorry, I got distracted thinking about that, and now I'm really angry again. Uh, in a statement from Newsom's office, getting back on topic here, uh, he described his budget proposal on homelessness as a, quote, massive infusion of state dollars. He also said that, quote, Homelessness is a national crisis, one that's spreading across the West Coast and cities across the country. The state of California is treating it as a real emergency because it is one, end quote. Uh, thanks, Governor Newsom. Uh, we appreciate the energy here, but bro, Talk what you doing? Cheap. Like, this is something that we've needed to be dealing with for a long, long, long time. Do something meaningful about it. You didn't really do much last year. You're like, come on, like, step up and act like it's an actual fucking emergency. <sighs> yep, so I I, it, it's one where like <laughs> this is. It's weird because this is like. The third time he's announced a new initiative on homelessness uh, at the state level, like we had a blue, yeah. ribbon, we had a special commission and then a blue ribbon commission, and now Woo-hoo. we have the homelessness strike force. Which, like, we don't need militaristic oh, language on, on this one. Like, we need human compassion uh, and you know empathy to solve this. Like, here in LA, we have the unified. <laughs> and not to have like, Mark Ridley Thomas at the center of any of it. Oh that's my a, god, that's a Get good start. Out. Having like Trump allies on your homelessness committee. Always a bad yeah. move. But we also, like, here in the city of L.A., we have, like, the unified command center or whatever they call it. And it's, like, uh. this militarized language that grappling with what is essentially a problem of, like, human compassion is just, like, so weird and off-putting and, like, so wrong on so many levels. And I don't know. I guess it's just easy. Like, it's just the easiest way to go and, like, you know, I guess make the case before the voters or give them something that... Um, you know, yeah. is easy to understand, uh, but at the same time, like it just rubs me as as such the wrong way, and and just not the most useless way to deal with this one. Let's move on real quick to talk about some of the sweeps that have been going on, because as we talk about like yeah. housing, we need to talk about how the city is failing our unhoused neighbors, and this is like really important because we know that Mayor Garcetti has been talking to the Trump administration about getting help for solving the homelessness crisis, which, like, that's fucking scary. But also, the point-in-time count is going to be coming up very soon. So it's coincidental, I guess, you know, purely coincidence and not at all, like, you know, uh, unethical thinking on the part of our city leaders that suddenly a whole bunch of massive sweeps have gone off in the last week. Uh, The homelessness, the point-in-time count will be happening on January 21st. You can still volunteer if you would like. But, you know, two weeks before that happens, suddenly L.A. has gone 
absolutely hog wild with displacing unhoused peoples and in a really dangerous way. Yes. So let's talk about the sweeps that went down, the biggest one being in the Sepulveda Basin, but they went down in, I want to say, at least five council districts over this last week, uh. and I don't think that that momentum is going to stop. Yeah, so uh, it's 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 just nuts. And this is actually, for a little bit more context for, for folks here, um, having been at City Hall and arguing about, like, the ethical nature, the unethical nature, rather, of these sweeps and the way that they've been implemented and demanding uh, through the Services Not Sweeps Coalition um, and, and getting up there and shouting about that all the time, um, like all last year, it feels like, we were able to get some some hopefully compassionate changes put in place with the Care and the Care Plus teams uh, where LAPD would not be necessarily involved. But then as soon as Herb Wesson announced that he was stepping down and Nuri Martinez uh, was be- became the uh, president-elect of the city council, immediately, like one of the very first things that came up was revisiting those new changes to Care and Care Plus and the involvement of the LAPD and basically just like going right back to where it was before. So like all of the progress that we were making toward really trying to scale down how uh, militarized and dehumanizing these sweeps of homeless encampments are was was immediately just put under threat because Neri Martinez is not our ally on this. Um, but anyway, Nithya Raman, who is running for city council in the 4th District, she tweeted about this on Thursday, specifically related to the Sepulveda Basin sweeps. Um, and the sweep had happened on Wednesday. She says, quote, The hundreds displaced from Sepulveda Basin yesterday, their possessions trashed, will now begin the work of recovery. They're still homeless, and their journey into housing is now even harder. These sweeps are the policy that happens when you don't care about people or results. End quote. So that... Yep very much encapsulates my understanding of how sweeps work because we're not giving people any real options of what else to do. In a lot of circumstances, the people that we do outreach to with K-Town for All and with other groups with like Streetwatch LA, they have caseworkers. They are working with people with LASA. They are trying to get into housing. They are just trying to survive while they wait for that actual housing to open up and for themselves to be given an opportunity to move into some place where they can, you know, actually begin the process of recovery uh, or just, you know, have a, a, a consistent roof over their head. We are not doing that when we go out and we do these kinds of military type actions, bulldozing people's uh, housing that they've uh, you know constructed for themselves, mm-hmm. and all we're doing is setting them back, making it harder because it's it's a it's a massive struggle for people on a day to day basis to get by when you're living on the streets. So taking away their possessions, trashing the place that they've now you know begun to feel even slightly secure in or taking their tents, especially when we're in the middle of like the rainy season here in LA and it's actually cold as fuck at night. If you're living on the streets, yep. Doing all of that is just making it so much worse, so much harder for these folks. And it's just, it's punitive and just nasty. There's no reason we should be doing this. And it's one of the reasons why we see more deaths from hypothermia in LA than we see in San Francisco or New York combined. You know, you can die from hypothermia when temperatures are only 50 degrees out. 
it becomes like yeah. an actual fight for survival. Not to mention like the implications it has on your mental health and your well-being. And to actually kind of like bring this a little bit more into focus, we're going to uh, play some audio now from video that we that was captured during the Sepulveda Basin sweep by our allies yeah. in Koreatown for all. Um, when did you get the notice, or was I there never a notice? Got any notice? There was no notice. No notice. This, this whole area. No, yeah. nothing back here. When were you told to leave? I was never told to leave. Oh, really? I've never been told to leave. Oh, um, okay, so you wouldn't even have known about it. No. Unless... no. As far as you know, I'm sleeping in the treehouse right now. When they get here, I will have had no notice, no warning, no nothing. Okay, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. Have you been packing anything? Um, I guess, yeah, I'm just putting some stuff out under the tree right now. Uh-huh. Um, Has Lhasa or LA Family Housing been here? Uh-huh. Have uh, homeless service providers been here to offer you anything? Um, no, not really. I mean, some people that bring food, you know, and that's about it. Okay, but they didn't offer you shelter or housing? No, no. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was working with LA Housing uh, about a year ago, and they were talking about rent being like $400, something like that, and I, I'm on disability. You know, I'm 60 this year, and it just, uh, that would leave me like 500 or something to live on, you know, mm -hmm. and that's just not, yeah. it's not enough for rent, so. How long have you been here? Like, going on three years. Okay. So, yeah, that's really hard to listen to, and I just, like, it's, yeah. Imagine if like the stuff that you own could just be grabbed by the cops and thrown out with very yeah. little if not if not no notice. And that if you objected yeah. to that, if you tried to stop the cops from stealing your stuff, they could arrest and or kill you and they would get yeah. away with it. Like that yeah. is I think Something that people don't understand is like when you become unhoused, even if you've been a person like the guy who made national news who went to Princeton and was a banker and ended up on Skid Row, mm. even if you've had like a normal person life, that isn't a protection once you're counted as like being homeless. That yep. once you're seen as that other in the eyes of the law and the eyes of the authority, all of your legal rights essentially can vanish in an instant. And the the media and the narrative that's going to develop around you is not one that's going to treat you like a human being. It's going to treat you as someone who had this coming, who was a broken individual who doesn't deserve the compassion and the empathy that most other people deserve. And one one bright spot in all of this that I'm I feel like I'm confident that I can I can share this without anyone getting mad at me about it is that I know that uh, K-Town for All is putting together a letter, uh, an open letter to a number of elected officials, uh, basically a, demanding at the very least a moratorium on all sweeps um, until the homeless count is completed because we have seen this happen time and time again uh, where sweeps are used uh, coincidentally, we're sure, uh, <clears throat> right before large events oh. happen to basically move folks out of the way and try to hide the scale of the problem. And if we are going to be serious about trying to actually address this problem and understand the scope and scale of what it is that we need to be tackling, doing any kind of a sweep in the weeks leading up to the homeless count is only going to make that worse. It's going to mean, like, if you've got sweeps happening while you're going out there counting, it means that you're shuffling people around and you're going to either be shuffling them into areas that have already been counted or shuffling them uh, 
into areas that will be counted. And either way, like if you're ticking those numbers up or down, you're changing like the you're you're fundamentally impacting uh, the accuracy of this count that they you know they seem to be relying on at City Hall and at the Board of Supervisors so much. Uh, like if you want to actually have a, an honest representation of how bad the problem is and how ineffective your solutions have been, uh, just do this. And, and also like it's the compassionate thing to do is to stop just trying to play whack-a-mole with this and treat people as people and actually give them some meaning, some meaningful level of respect. Um, but you know, that's, that's a lot to ask for and, uh, it shouldn't be, but it seems to be. Mm-hmm. And, we're 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 really uh, I'm looking forward to uh, you know putting that that open letter up on blast for folks and urging uh, everyone to call their city council uh, representatives and to call your board of supervisors and call the mayor's office and really demand that we have a complete moratorium on sweeps at least until the homeless count is finished. And uh, speaking of that, as we move into uh, things that you can do this next week, I wanted to first flag that. You know, obviously, city council elections are coming up for the uh, even districts. Uh, I really want to encourage you to go out and knock doors for Lorraine Lundquist. You can sign up at LorraineForLA.com. For Nithya Raman, she's at NithyaForTheCity.com. Lorraine, I should mention, she's running in Council District 12, which is the northern end of the valley. Uh, Nithya is running in Council District 4, which is like Koreatown, a little bit of Hollywood, uh, Silver Lake, Echo Park, as well as Sherman Oaks. So kind of a weird, you know, kind of gerrymandered-ish district, but she's running against David Ryu. Uh, Lorraine Lundquist is running against John Lee, who has been an absolute disaster in the short time that he has been in office. Uh, We have a real chance to, like, change the narrative, not just on homelessness, but on policing, on immigration, on so many of the fundamental issues that we need to fix in this city. So please get out there. You can always connect with Ground Game LA, and we will give you other places to go canvas. If you happen to be in the city of Glendale, look into Dan Brotman. Dan Brotman is running for city council in Glendale. He has been a fierce advocate for the environment, fighting to shut down the gas plant in Glendale, fighting to build a more sustainable Glendale. I don't have his website handy on me, but if you just Google Dan Brotman, then you know you will definitely find him or surf on over to Ground Game. And the last yeah, thing I'm going to flag before we too. move on to the actual events that we're going to be talking about here is the Knock Voter Guide is going to be coming out. Uh, we're yeah. going to be dropping that hopefully around the time that mail-in ballots uh, land in your hand, which is going to be like early February. Uh, We will definitely have that out before we get too close to the March 3rd date. Again, don't forget that you can either mail in your ballot or you can go to one of our fancy schmancy new voting centers where you can vote for 11 days before the election. And I think this is the coolest part. So starting like February 20th, you can start voting. You can even do same-day voter registration. So if you're not registered, you can still show up to vote. If your friend isn't registered, you can muscle them into your car, take them to a voting center, get them (laughs) registered, and get them voting in a a couple of minutes. We are not advocating for you to kidnap any of your friends and force them to vote, uh, but... Everything short of that, please do. Um, <laughs> and uh, on the note that we've been talking vigorously about, vigorously encourage the them count. to vote. Voting Correct. will not save you, but it's like breathing. You kind of have to do yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but getting back to the, the homeless count, uh, just so everyone is aware, you can go to www.theycountwillyou.org. Again, that's theycountwillyou.org and sign up as a volunteer for the 2020 Greater Los Angeles Homeless Account. Uh, it's occurring on the 21st for San Gabriel and San Fernando Valleys. 
Uh, it's going to be happening on the 22nd. This is all this month uh, for West L.A., Southeast L.A., and the South Bay. And then January 23rd for Antelope Valley, Metro Los Angeles, and South Los Angeles. So go over to that website, sign up to volunteer to help do the count. Uh, I will be out there helping to count, uh, and I really hope that y'all will be out there uh, alongside me and all of our friends that will be doing it too because the best way to make sure that we've got good numbers there is for good, solid volunteers who are earnest about the work and want to see some changes happen get out Mm -hmm. there and give us an accurate number of what the hell's going on. Um, Also worth pointing out here, we've got this Sunday, uh, January 12th, there is going to be a rally happening uh, from Swana, which Swana is uh, the the Southwest uh, Asians. And hold on, ah, damn it! Why is this not working? Come on! All right, so on on uh, Sunday, January twelfth, we have a rally that's going to be happening at one p.m. Uh, starting at one p.m. on Westwood Boule- Westwood Boulevard and Lagrange Avenue. Uh, and it is going to be a no war, no sanctions, no ban uh, protest. Uh, they're asking that participants leave flags and nationalist symbols at home. Uh, that's not what this protest is about. This is a protest uh, in solidarity with the people who are going to be impacted. Uh, Swana is the Southwest Asian and North African community uh, for Los Angeles. Uh, they are the frontline community that is being impacted here. Uh, we want to follow their their lead on this. If you can, show up again that Sunday, January 12th at 1 p.m., uh, Westwood Boulevard and LaGrange Avenue. Uh, this is a protest against any action in Iran. Fortunately, it does seem like that's all st- stepping down a little bit, but uh, show up and help them out with the protest anyway. Um, of course, the Black Lives Matter weekly vigil is still on schedule for Wednesday downtown at 211 West Temple Street, the same time, same place as always. The vigil starts at 4, runs until 6. We've got a number of Los Angeles Tenants Union meetings happening next week. The Hollywood Local is happening on Monday evening. Uh, The East Hollywood Local happens on Wednesday, as does the Mid-City Local and the West Side Local. And then on Thursday, we've got the Vibe Local meeting happening at the same time that we at Ground Game have our weekly meetings. And of course, uh, you can find all the details for the Los Angeles Tenants Union uh, calendar over at latenantsunion.org. And uh, the Ground Game meeting happens, as usual, 7.30 to 9 p.m. every Thursday at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. Come on by, say hi, and uh, jump in and get involved. So, uh, the and yeah, of course, like as as Bushido mentioned, uh, please get involved in the Nithya and Lorraine and Dan Brotman canvases because we need leaders like them to come in and uh, have any chance of us uh, surviving uh, with any sense of dignity moving forward. So, yeah. Um, As always, if y'all have any events that you want us to be taking part in, publicizing, or being made aware of, please send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or by email over at podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can follow us over on Twitter at GroundGameLA, at BushidoSquirrel, at Christopher Roth, over on Instagram at GroundGameLA, and you can like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of the live stream content we have from Actions Around the City, as well as links from Knock. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. Knock.LA is a cooperative, nonprofit, multimedia collaborative, and we invite you to be a part of it. 
please support our work over on Patreon. We pay local writers to report on issues happening in their neighborhoods and around LA, so your support goes directly to funding the work of shining light into places the establishment figures don't want you to see. We also invite you to contribute your own work over at Knock.LA. We are in this together, and your voice matters. If you'd like to read the sources that we're citing or quoting here for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description over on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm going to leave us all on a quote from Bernie Sanders accepting the endorsement of Sunrise Movement. I want to take this opportunity to thank the Sunrise Movement for their very, very important endorsement. And I want to thank them for being one of the leaders in this country in understanding that in terms of climate change, we face an existential threat, not only here in America, but around the world. And what the Sunrise Movement understands, what they are fighting for, and what I am fighting for, is to tell the fossil fuel industry that the future of our planet is more important than their short-term profits.